This show is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Charleston Coffee Roasters. Charleston Coffee Roasters painstakingly searches the world over for the highest quality coffee beans. They bring them home to Charleston, South Carolina, where slow roasting coaxes out their unique flavor. Along with their promise of great coffee, Charleston Coffee Roasters also pledges to help our planet and local communities. Globally, they support sustainable farming practices. Locally, they partner with the South Carolina Sea Turtle Rescue Program. Visit their website, charlestoncoffeeroasters.com and use the code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS, all lowercase, all one word, to get 20% off on all bagged coffees. I was part of a culture at Rolling Stone that we knew we were imprinting the culture with something new. We were the new voice. And that, I used to call it Elan, you know, that sensibility was actually something I took away when Audible started, that if we could be as you know, positively disruptive using modern language um, as we could and give new voices and new opportunities to artists of all types and the like that there's, there won't be a better place to work. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. This is part two of our fascinating and deep dive into the world of Audible Originals. In part one, we spoke with Kathy Murray and Martha Hall Kelly about their co-author experience on the Audible original, The Munich Cowboy Cheerleaders. Go back and check that out if you missed it. It was so good. I personally was so surprised to hear about the racism within that cheerleading world. Today, we are thrilled to talk with Don Katz, whose own amazing career, beginning at the Rolling Stones magazine, led to becoming the founder and initial CEO of Audible. Before he founded Audible, Don was a journalist and author for 20 years. He wrote five books and served as a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and many other publications. His work won a National Magazine Award and was nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award. Katz graduated from New York University in 1974, where he studied with novelist Ralph Ellison. We are going to talk about that in just a minute. He then went on to pursue graduate studies at the London School of Economics, where he was awarded a Master of Science. He founded Audible in 1995, 
And that, our listeners, is what we are here to talk about today. Headquartered in Newark, New Jersey since 2007, Audible serves millions of listeners and offers over 700,000, probably wow. even more by the end of this interview, <laughs> downloadable Audible Originals, audiobooks, audio editions of periodicals, and other programs. Last month, PEN America announced that Don was the Business Visionary Honoree for its 2022 Literary Gala. There is so much to talk to Don about, so let's get started talking to him instead of about him. Welcome, Don. Welcome. Well, thank you, Patty, and thank you, Ron. It's so exciting to be here. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on the Writer's Block. Yes. All right. Before we dive into Audible, I want to talk about your first life your writing life. I think it gives you such a unique perspective on the storytelling world. You started writing for Rolling Stone when you were, I think, 23 years old. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Wow. It's a time you talk about as the new journalism. So tell us about that before we jump into Audible. Well, so much to say. I, uh, you know, I, I actually was one of those um, kind of English majors who always dreamed of being a writer, but coming from a part of Chicago where nobody's father was a writer, I never really thought I could do it. And, uh, and you know, long story short, I, I thought I needed to do something beyond my love of words and literature and the sound of, of books. I was always one of those slow readers who would hear the music and the language. I wasn't, and I think a lot of people who became pretty good pro stylists, and Patty, you might have a view on this, are actually pretty slow readers. Yeah. And so I, I ended up going to the London School of Economics thinking I would, you know, stay out of the v Vietnam War and also, um, um, you know, do something other than law school, which was kind of the default for people in my generation when you didn't know what to do. And somehow through the combination of it and just the luck of having a friend who would take me to rock concerts, I ended up meeting a Rolling Stone writer who listened to what I had to say about what was going on in the world, particularly in Europe and the wars of liberation and the things that I knew something about in, uh, you know, in, in both Europe and, and Africa said, you should really write a letter to this guy at Rolling Stone. And one way or another, I get a telegram, something I'd have to tell many, many of my employees, let alone my, you know, my children, grandchildren about um, that said, go to Spain and you could cover the end of Franco for Rolling Stone. And uh, without any real student journalism, I went and I kind of learned to be a journalist over the months that Franco took to die and uh, covered it from the Basque underground perspective of the Eta nationalists, who I happened to know some of just through the way I'd spent my time. And, uh, and it ended up being published without much editing, and it was published with my name on the cover. And I remember going into the head of the London School of Economics and said, I, I think I'm going to go do this. <laughs> and I left my PhD program. And I started and then I immediately was asked to write for the New Republic, which again, your listeners probably don't realize how, how heavyweight a journal like the New Republic was in those days, in the mid-70s. So I kind of had to decide eventually between this kind of new mode of novelistic storytelling, of truth-telling, which, uh, which we saw as Rolling Stone writers as truth-telling in the face of what mainstream newspapers and television journalism were saying. I mean, there was a lot of evidence at the time that it's, it wasn't a glory time either on reporting on race or 
or the reality of, of, of equality around the world and other kinds of things that we really thought we were kind of doing a, a morally <laughs> superior job of telling the truth. And well, we were. got to, and we got to do it in a way that really allowed the reader to feel like they were understanding, as I always used to do, what does it mean to be willing to die for a cause? What does it mean to be, you know, to, to be, be part of this? Like, why was it that the police force in Houston was out of control on a level of, you know, actual racism against Latinos and were actually covering up, you know, the murder of, uh, of Latino men and things like that. So we were, you know, we were doing investigations, but we were humanizing it in a particular way. And I loved it, incidentally. And I was such a, I mean, I used to, it's a joke, but I used to avoid the editors when they came to London. I always managed to be on assignment because I was one of those kids who looked like I was 12 when I was 24 and 23. <laughs> and so I, I thought they wouldn't take me seriously. And I would go off again and, you know, and, and run around. But I ran around with people who became, you know, you know, the Red Brigade, for instance, I, I, I covered the Autonomy Operai, which was before it split and went underground, and they, you know, they actually murdered Aldo Moro. And um, I covered Northern Ireland. I was in, you know, in Somalia and the Ethiopian Revolution. So it was a, it was quite an adventurous and exciting, you know, time of my life. But the what's interesting is that the I was part of a culture at Rolling Stone that we knew we were imprinting the culture with something new. We were a new voice, and that I used to call it elan. You know, that sensibility was actually something I took away when Audible started, that if we could be as, you know, positively disruptive using modern language uh, as we could and give new voices and new opportunities to artists of all types and the like, that there's, there won't be a better place to work. And that, you know, that was kind of my baseline and my best experience of organization life, which is challenging now that Audible is so gigantic, right. but it's, um, it's still a vision of the possible. And, and, you called it new journalism then. And one of the interesting things, and we're going to get into it in a minute when we talk about disruption, is that it was longer, right? When we read these articles back then, yeah. they were 15,000 words, 20,000 words, instead of 1,500 words, like our quick reads right. today. And I like seeing some of that come back with some of the things you're doing. Yeah, I think it is to some extent. I mean, it is really interesting. Even the, 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 the reborn Rolling Stone, which we, I always thought we should grow up to be the feature magazine of the baby boom generation, because we kind of saw the New Yorker as waspy and stodgy <laughs> you know? and, uh, and not particularly risky and the like. So it is, there is a lot of opportunity to bring it back. But, you know, one of the things that caused me to put up, as many people thought of a perfectly successful writing life aside to do audible was the truth was uh, people think I saw the internet coming or whatever, you know, the magazine business was going to struggle. It was actually all about link that I, I was, I wasn't able to do 12 and anymore and anywhere because of the ad model made the, the magazines thinner and, you know, go back and forth. People, something the podcasting industry doesn't yet understand the ad models are cyclical. And so, and then it would go down to 10, and then it would go to 8,000 words. And then it was when Tina Brown came in with Vanity Fair, my, my per word number went off the charts. And it's like, you know, it was like making $40,000, $50,000 an article, which was pretty good by any standards. But I only could write 5,000 words, and you couldn't turn the corners and create the characters. And then it, it started going down to 3,500. And then I realized, even though I had books in my life, that this was going in a direction that 
opened up the opportunity that I should do something else because my books were quite long. I mean, my, my first book was over 600 pages long and my second book was over, you know, 600 pages long. And then I, I, I wrote a book about Nike called Just Do It. That was a big bestseller, which was really a 25,000 word Sports Illustrated cover story that was I then elaborated on. But at any rate, uh, the joke then was that I, you know, Jack Dorsey, who started Twitter and I were in a a steam room once at a conference and I told him this length story and I said, little did I know it was going to get down to 140 characters. <laughs> <laughs> Not even 140 words, Don, yeah, 140 yes. characters. But I, but I think that and also, you know, I, I, I wrote this book, Home Fires, and you know this, Patty, it's like when you're a writer, there's nothing better than that great riff, that sentence where you, and I, I would give lectures at journalism school and say, if you don't get uh, an electric charge in the back of your neck when you write that sentence that you know has got your best in it, then don't do this because it's really hard to do. Find something else. And every time I would get one of those um, Entrepreneur of the Year things, which should get handed out a lot, I always would dedicate it to freelance writers who make a living in America because I'd say they're, they're the most entrepreneurial people. One time I actually said, I said, I think I know everyone in America who has a house uh, who writes full time because and now, you know, there's a lot of writing going on. But the number of people who can afford to write full time, including those who don't have to work in universities, is not that large. Um, and I, I think one of the things Audible's done is created a really major outlet for that to say nothing of my favorite, you know, fact of all, which is we've directly contracted and employed 60,000 different working performers in the last 10 years. So we've created, you know, a lot of opportunity there, which I like to think is, is also profoundly creative opportunity, which your work for audible and, and, you know, the work you want to discuss related to the Munich cowboy cheerleaders that exemplifies the whole idea but the whole idea of the company had a creative vision and a creator vision from the beginning because of where I came from. And I also, because I'd written business books, I understood what intermediaries, in this case, let's talk publishers and agents, did and didn't do versus the primary you know, creators themselves. And I also knew what they got out of the whole. <laughs> and I understood that. And I understood for all best intentions of people who love books, the distribution model was really tortured to the point that, you know, you've seen it. I'm sure you get to, used to be, you get to, you know, Portland and you do AM Portland on your book tour. And then you go around, I'd go around trying to sign the books. And a lot of times there were no more. <laughs> So when the idea of what digital could mean, you know, came to me in a whole another story, you know, of, of how things happen with my college roommate talking about the future of technology, because I switched my Esquire column where I wrote the business column for much of the 80s, you know, the investment column. I switched it to tech on the thesis that it would be the next thing that my generation, the baby boom generation, didn't know about, which was going to change their lives in the way that the money culture came at us when we thought maybe we wouldn't, ha we wouldn't have to deal with money. <laughs> uh, so so uh, I, I knew a lot about it, but as soon as I saw, oh my God, wait a minute, if you could digitally send these audio books that I have in my belly pack when I run around you know, jogging, if you could send them digitally to people, you would never be out of stock. 
And never. you never have to go out of print. Now, a lot of people don't even know what out of print is anymore. But, you know, that was when your books are kind of, you know, put on tables or shredded because nobody wants them anymore. And I thought, you know, this could be a really interesting thing. And, uh, and then I melded together. You know, Ron mentioned that I studied with Ralph Ellison, my lifelong belief in the power of the vernacular tradition of oral storytelling and somehow audible came out of that. <laughs> so what do you attribute the original kernel of the idea of, for audible from? I think it was some relations you had to Ralph. Yeah, definitely. The idea from Ralph was just that I always knew that American literature was a function of the vernacular impact on our storytelling traditions and how polyglot that was with the Yankee peddler and the, and the slaves in the field. And, the, you know, the, the, the storytelling traditions were so deep. And I knew that Mark Twain and Stephen Crane were writing like Americans when Henry James, who wrote like a Brit, was still writing because they listened. And they heard it, you know, so I was always and then but the truth is a lot of people were really snobby about textual culture in the more literary realms of society because, you know, literary culture had been redefined from the 19th century around print, even though for the previous couple thousand years, it really was a vernacular tradition going back to the Greek. So I, I actually took this idea and thought, you know, if you added to the textual experience, the nuanced interpretation. Think of theater, for instance, where, you know, think of the critical reviews of theater. It's, it's not just the text. It's the text is refracted through interpretive performances and direction and dramaturgy. So I, I always had this idea that you could take the spoken word and the spoken word should have been a huge category of media in America, particularly up there with all elements of video and film and music and books. And that was the vision in the beginning that it would be a mixture of the best writing and the best performance. It was the, the concept of the audiobook was fairly undeveloped, but it did exist. It was largely, and if they were unabridged, you rented them in big brown boxes. But there were only a couple thousand all in audiobooks when we, we started. And a part of it was that. And then part of it was always what I think, you know, Patty and thousands of other primary genius creators have been a part of was, you know, what if you wrote and performed to a really intimate aesthetic and in the sense of it being always, um, it would be almost like a your performance only. And so I sold people in on this, including Robin Williams, who was doing short form original programming for us five years before the word podcasts <laughs> was came amazing. in. And then Rick... Ricky Gervais jumped in and did some really interesting, you know, stuff for us. And so we were always out there with this idea of the audiobook part of it um, really took off. And um, partly because of the simple utility of allowing people, while they did other things, notably driving to work, to read, read five books in a month rather than one. I mean, it was as simple as that. And, um, and technology got better and better. Um, but, but there were various sea changes along the way, notably that, believe it or not, when I came into this, the people who are most serious about making audiobooks told the actors to take on a monotone. They, they literally told them to read without any inflection because it was I the agree. writer's game. And this was just a supplement to it, you know? And so, you know, there were, we, when we decided to open up 
this as from Audible. In about 2009, 2010, you started to get performers other than there were iconic audiobooks like Jeremy Irons doing Lolita, which was before we did this thing called Project Hollywood, where we decided let's get all the greatest actors in the world together and let them position a novel as a script and see what they can do. Um, and they came from all over and witness, if I'm sure listeners should know about Wild Swan because Patty's the host, but um, Cynthia Erivo is, is, a, is a Broadway and, and highly trained British you know, um, actor. So she, you know, the interpretive character of bringing the great writing and great, great performance together was kind of um, core, but it went really big about 2010, 2011, where we overtly drafted Colin Firth and Anne Hathaway and oh, Dustin Hoffman and yeah, all these My great favorite. people. And then they just, uh, you saw um, what actors who are famous for making what they call great decisions, you know, in the acting world can do. It really has kind of evolved for there. And then in most of our recent years, we've been back more to the pure idea of like, what if you wrote and performed to this, um, this powerfully intimate kind of aesthetic? And, and we've, you know, if, if you kind of read the papers, we, I mean, just an idea like Audible Theater has just generated, you know, a massive amount of amazing, you know, content and new voices and underrepresented voices. And then, you know, program like Words and Music, uh, where we've had, I think, 30 profound storytelling experiences from major, major musicians where they tell you the story of something profound and punctuate it with music and arpeggio. James Taylor let it off. Uh, and, uh, and this is just, it's been just such a pleasure for me because the idea was always um, draw the best creativity out of primary creators um, and you will make, you know, listeners really, really happy. And you'll also, you know, create a, a haven almost where people can to be as creative as they want to be because people do get slotted in. I mean, if you're a best-selling you know, historical fiction writer, it's kind of an expectation they're all around you of doing the same thing. <laughs> At <know>. least, you know. <laughs> but it's also amazing to me that, that there's a book I could love, like The End of the Affair by Grand Green is one of my favorite books of all time. And I've read it numerous times. But when I hear Colin Firth read The End of the Affair, everything shifts. And I know that you've talked about before, and we mentioned it briefly at the top, that all these different things come along and disrupt what we expect. So for you, when you talk about new journalism, you talk about the typewriter and the tape recorder and how that shifted things. And then the PC and how when these new things come along, these disruptors, they can often be demonized, right? They invariably are demonized, but by the standing owner class of the medium at the time, they actually usually create golden ages. There's a golden age of radio, a golden age of television, because they inevitably happen anyway. And the most creative people cross over and do want to be part of it. But the institutional reaction, I mean, one of the best examples is that the sheet music business in America was a profoundly calcified and extremely important and aristocratic business. And people, but only rich people played the piano. And, you know, it was, it was a very, music. or had the music or the, you know, and had the piano. Um, but when, when the idea of recorded music came in, they fought it off with just as hard as, you know, the 
frankly, the the movie industry spent almost all its time and effort fighting off the advent of pay cable and the Sony Betamax recorder in the early 70s. It just happens every time, but it then explodes into you know, new creativity and, frankly, business outcomes. I mean, the, the, the theater business was dying in the early 70s. It was less than $2 billion or something, and um, and they spent all this money and being told by the Supreme Court that, no, a movie's a movie. It doesn't matter if it's on TV. And onward. by the end of the century, it was $30 billion in revenue, this 20th century. Um, and almost all the growth was in DVDs, remember those, and, uh, you know, and other I ways to, to, to shift, <laughs> to shift and, and pay cable, um, what came in there, um, and other ways of the consumer having the convenience and of, of expressing their interest in things without going to the theater. So, you know, it's just, it's just one of the, it goes with the territory. And the truth is the paperback book was successfully subverted as a degradation of the purity that is the leather-bound hardcraft book for decades. <laughs> because, it, and part of that was, you know, it wasn't really in the minds of a lot of people, nobody probably alive now, that, you know, the rising middle class needed to read. It's just unfortunately that's that's kind of what when you look at it. But what you said was so profound because you know handwriting changed the character of expression and was also a profoundly different technology that had its own resistance going back you know four hundred five hundred years. So um, all of these things are are fascinating historically, but they're also are often um, inevitable. It's just a question of um, whether those years of, of fighting it off, you know, are, you know, negative for lots of people who could be, you know, in, enjoying content, learning and having, yes. having ways that, I mean, I, I audible when you, I mean, my life's pretty exciting now because if people figure out my, what I've done, the amount of people who literally have to sit me down and thank me for changing their life. is just <laughs> literally true. daily. Sure. And so, and, you know, there's nothing better than a reader who speaks from the heart and tells you what your work has meant for them, which incidentally still happens to me, too. So I'm a doubly lucky guy. Doubly but lucky. Uh, but the, the idea that this can have so many impacts on, on people, and it, and it really did change reading. I mean, the, there, was a huge, there was a huge inflection point where the intelligentsia in particular didn't talk about the difference between reading and listening. And so, I mean, that's when I knew, you know, we, 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 we actually had a campaign years ago called Listening is the New Reading, um, because it was actually becoming true. Um, and, you know, and at that point, I didn't put the, the ad, added thing that you actually get an interpretive layer. Um, and it was just a lot of work to get here and stuff. You know, one of the things was that when we did uh, the Project Hollywood, you know, 2010, 2012 period, we began teaching in acting schools all over the world, long-form narrative arts, because the teaching at that point was pretty much focused on both theater and, and movies, which were shorter takes. So this sustained ability to, you know, have a nuanced performance that would go on in a seamless and art, artful way for for hours. And so we taught it, you know, in USC, UCLA, Tisch, Yale, Drama, Oriel Academy of the Arts, and then of course it became integrated into the curriculum. And then, you know, eventually the New York Times wrote that we were the largest employer of actors in the New York area uh, because so many people with acting gifts were now, you know, 
being able to work doing audio. And they built a whole community around it. Yeah, it's a well. There's multiple communities of all different le- levels of, you know, of professional attainment. There's there's a, a platform called ACX where people can audition online um, as long as they are usually young people with um, with voice talent, and they can actually do it from home with their own digital kits and uh, and then publish it online. And there's there's all different you know, communities of. Um, of people who come together. But one of my favorite is, you know, relates to this idea of taking, you know, as with your, your wild swans, where you get, you know, two talents who then come together and, you know, and interact. And, um, you know, obviously with the best, hopefully the best kind of nurturance and help from our producers, um, you know, and the same thing with, uh, with Munikabe cheerleaders, which, uh, you know, Frankly, should have a much bigger audience than maybe I'll try to help out with that because I, I wasn't as aware of it as I should be because we're making so much fantastic content now. But um, but the whole the way it's interpreted, the quality of the story, the fact that, you know, Martha Hall Kelly was was involved as another, you know, major author with, uh, you know, a real big franchise in her more traditional way, which we sell lots of, you know, because right. she writes really interesting books, but to cross over and tell this true story and to do it in this um, alternating, you know, first person narrative kind of format, which is very powerful for us. It's just just so exciting. The Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Page One Books. The Page One Book Subscription provides the personal touch of an indie bookstore with the delight and surprise of an online subscription service curated just for you. The literary matchmakers at Page One Books hand-select books just for you based on your preferences and their knowledge. At Page One Books, you are more than an algorithm. Shop now at pageonebooks.com. That's page, the number one, books.com. Choose their three, six, or 12-month subscription plan. The gift of page one is always a custom fit. And now you can get 15% off all book subscriptions with the code FRIENDS15. So you mentioned earlier a little bit about Audible Originals and and then moving on to Audible Theater a little bit. Recent article in New York Times was just fascinating and I, it was presented in such a new view of things. So can you talk about the a little bit about that and in particular we talked about Coal Country which I'm halfway through listening to and it's just unbelievable on audio but it's also a live production. Yeah. When we started to basically put out the word to all elements of the writing community and we said anybody like you know Beat reporters, advertising writers, listen, if you can write to this format, we're here to, you know, to help you and, and hear what you want to do. It became clear about seven years ago that the script writers from Hollywood were often so visually led that the idea of putting a towel over your face, which is what I always say, like, and like, does this work? You know, uh, it just, it was harder. And, um, you know, 
guy's dropping a name, but you know, Shonda Rhimes, great producer. I mean, if you think of Scandal and all the things she does, she, she, <laughs> she, you know, the sound aesthetic of a Shonda. Shonda has a, there's a beat, there's a music, you know, and then there's the explosive soliloquy by the great Joe Morton or whatever. So, so you know, you're on a, and then she told me that, um, that script writers are trained primarily to have a, a map for action you know, a map for visual action. And from there, the, you know, the, the switches are, are secondary. So I began to think about the theater community just as potential, you know, both under, underemployed often, highly thoughtful, and people who had to least work with a smaller box. And so this sort of started some ideas around this. And plus, I had a lifelong interest in particularly one and two voice, they call them one-handers and two-handers in theater, which... I think when the soliloquy-like voice really works or alternating soliloquy, it's just so profound. And I figured it would be right. It would be for everybody at Audible, whether you grew up with radio theater, as frankly, only Americans over a really old age or a lot of Brits and a lot of Germans over 40 grew up with radio theater. So um, so anyway, it's, just, it's just one thing led to another. And I got the support of, Again, probably not, you know, it's Tom Stoppard and Oscar used to the public theater and Annette Benning and, um, and Lynn Nottage, the, the great, great playwright, and, and Henry David Huang and others. And they all helped form this editorial board to create a, a commission structure where we would commission, and now it's been, you know, I think four dozen uh, young playwrights um, to write one and two handers that we would produce. And either we would put them on in theater or we wouldn't, but we'd certainly record them. And then, then we, um, we took over the Mineta Theater, um, which is kind of an iconic independent small theater in Greenwich Village in New York. And we began to also say, you know, if you've got a really interesting performance, even if it's five days or 12 days, because the theater business is its own thing, which, um, and part of this was one of the catalysts for this, again, <laughs> dropping the names, but... Patty knows that sometimes that is how our best ideas come up. That I remember Bette Midler telling me she had committed to 48 weeks for Hello, Dolly, because the business model of, oh, of theater was such that that was the kind of link they needed. And I thought, wait a minute, we have a completely different business model. We're serving people, I don't know, you know, millions and millions of them all over the world to, you know, with their audio needs. We don't need to say that. So then the idea was like, well, let's, you know, the product, how long you can do it and everything doesn't really matter to us. And, uh, and we'd like to do this. And, and then, you know, the, the other side of it that the Times article picked up, Ron, was that um, the, I, was, uh, I was saying that uh, um, you, you, uh, you ended up in, in the theater community um, with no electronic revenue stream. If you think about it, so the speech I gave once, it's basically like, if you know what a ticket to the Browns game or the, you know, or the, or the Giants game would cost if there was no television revenue, it would make a Springsteen ticket on Broadway look cheap. And, yeah. and so the idea was we could potentially you know, support the theater infrastructure with a new revenue stream. So there was a business concept behind it as well as a creative one, but... Um, but it's uh, it's been it's been amazing to watch how much of that talent. And then there's all this crossover stuff where you know you end up because so many Hollywood actors and the best actors 
wish they could be doing theater or at least respect people who do theater. So that kind of helps us with that. And then you end up, so with Cold Country, which was um, a, a beautifully reviewed four like day performance before COVID shut it down with the public theater where we have a strong alliance. Um, we, we wanted to revive it um, and then, you know, record it and, and give it a new voice and then decided it was so good that we should put it back out as a theatrical experience too. But there's a case where uh, Steve Earle, the, the weirdly talented Texan who's you know, done so much from Nashville to, to New York, um, he added so much to that piece with his amazing lyrics and, and voice. Well, he also is one of the people who's done uh, a Words and Music Audible original and that's really worth listening to because it's it's a, it's as much it's a deep analysis of the history of Greenwich Village and in a, in a completely fascinating theory of what happened in the '60s between the Beatles and Bob Dylan riffing. I mean, it's like it's just one of these things you would never hear. And plus, he picks and and does his amazing you know um, um, you know singing talking throughout the whole thing. So anyway, it's it's just a. Uh, Cold Country is a is it, and it's a really, you know, unbelievably painful story of of, of corporate, just corporate greed at a point, and frankly, you know, corporate crime, and what what the, and what happened to these families in an era where it didn't need to happen. Amazing story. Over twenty years to see these Audible go from this idea of vernacular storytelling to Audible originals to Audible theater to it, it's. It's astounding to watch and shows that we were waiting to listen to all of this, but we can't go anywhere. We've kept you way too long, but we have to talk about your contribution to the community in Newark because where Audible is headquartered, because one of Audible's people principles is activate caring. And you are recognized as one of America's top 25, and I still love this word, disruptive leaders. And your work on behalf of urban transformation, you're the founder of New Work Venture. Also, you work with New Work Working Kitchens. Talk a little bit to us about why you think it's important that businesses are involved in their communities the way Audible is. Well, I can't say what other businesses ought to do, but in the spirit of you know leading by example, we decided to move mm -hmm. into a city most people thought of as broken and and, uh, and, and defined by danger and poverty in 2007. And part of this was to, to basically the concept of activate caring, which is, you know, our people principles are pretty distinctive. And I kind of think about, you know, there's no companies are all good. I think there have been companies that have proven you can't have a company that's all bad. I know the people may not be, but the companies uh, actually can be. And cold country shows that, you know, in a big way. But I, I think what I always pledged was at the time we were past the near-death experiences of which there were many of just making the company work and sustain itself that we would turn as best we could to something that I had been literally thinking about studying and had defined my life, as, which is urban core and urban inequality and some of the structural inequalities which unfortunately it took the death of George Floyd for others to start to wake up and think about or read about the, you know, the fix being in for particularly people of color in the urban core. Um, and I just, uh, and I go back to, you know, my formative experiences in Chicago and growing up when I did uh, and the civil rights movement and what in the, in the, you know, the 
really the, the, this, the, the city and the state killing Black Panthers and things were incredibly impactful parts of my, my existence. So I understood a lot about this. So anyways, we tried, as you said, we've, we've done so many different programs. And my idea was scalable investment paradigms like wealth creation and company creation and, um, you know, not just giving money to charities. And it's a more complicated argument, but what happened in American philanthropy was that the innovations that were part of American philanthropy in the early 20th century um, kind of gave way to just letting the nonprofits have money at the gala time and things like that. And um, so it over-indexed on the outcomes of structural inequality and, and poverty and, and health and all the issues. And it didn't actually do a lot to talk about things that could affect the core cause of this. And Martin Luther King has sermons about this in 1963, about expiating guilt, you know, versus speaking to the cause of the need of charity. And so we've tried our best to do this and use things like multiplier effects and, you know, Amazon and Audible kind of roll as the flywheel or things that can hit five and six things at the same time. So you start a, a venture fund that's designed to bring companies in and create all these rub-off jobs, maybe up to seven new jobs for every tech job in a changing community. And then you potentially, you start to focus on things like uh, really innovative um, mental health services for an um, underserved population. And then you nurture those companies. So then you can drive job growth and, you know, and Newark, and you can also serve underprivileged communities. And so, you know, it's a flywheel. So anyway, it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered you, you mentioned it. And it's, uh, it's my, my sense of being impactful on the social side as a company is, um, to me, one of the best reasons you'd want to work at Audible, if you fully understood the opportunity. Uh, and it's been really defining. And the good news is it's, it's, um, we're in, I think, 25 global centers of the people who work for Audible, and all of them have different ways, given their communities of embracing this idea of activate caring, which really is, you know, you're a language person, and you both are. And so it's like, you know, the idea was, you know, that's not the same as giving back or caring. It's activism of some level. And that was the the idea why that was written in a particular way. And so, you know, our people principles, incidentally, are a small prose experience. Uh, I I kind of rejected the idea of these one-off corporate value statements, um, partly because I covered WorldCom and Enron in the old days, and you know, and those corporations, which you forget, talk about outlaw. You know, uh, you know that uh, uh, their 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 principles and their value statements weren't that different than a lot of these, you know, little slogan statement ones that tech companies have. So um, I I figured, you know, it's something you have to read and think about, and uh, you know, and whatever happens in the future, uh, with for me at least, they're they're there for other people to read uh, who work for Audible, but I'm probably not going to know. Well, just the language makes you think of moving towards something, right? Yeah. Not just writing a check or supporting or showing up at a gala, but activating, like movement towards yeah. something. Yeah. So. Yeah. I do wish that other companies would do that. I mean, you, you move into the urban core, you start to hire the kinds of human beings who live in these cities. It is the most liberal. It is it literally it, this. Uh, the po- we talk about the power of giving people a chance. You add them into a corporate culture that already has uh, all these old English majors turned into business people like me and super technologists and, you know, actors and directors and, you know, people from all kind of walks of life. It just creates it begins to go back to the idea of, uh, back at Rolling Stone, you know, that 
the Elan, you know, when it's when it works. COVID has really injured, you know, basically has injured poor people worse than rich people. It's it's, it's injured, you know, the the character of the downtown. It's injured so many things. So we're still trying to figure out how to recover from that. But on the whole, you know, the the visions of the possible is as I often say, have been, you know, pretty, pretty successful and potentially replicable by other corporations or philanthropies or um, governments. It's amazing. Okay, Don, we have so much more to talk to you about (laughs) narrators and stories and audible originals and growth of the platform. But I think a great way to end is with one of your quotes that I love. I've always thought that companies can have hearts and souls and they can have meaningful legacies. And that, our listeners, is what Audible is, a company with a heart and a soul and a legacy. So inspiring. Oh, my goodness. Don, the last thing before you go, I know that you're really active on Twitter. Where else can listeners find you, find out more about Audible? I'm actually not, Ron. It's so funny. I I, got to tell you, I'm just not. It's so funny. I was uh, interacting with my friend Neil Gaiman, the great writer. And I noticed it said he posted like one million like tweets oh, or something. True. I say, I, I literally just never did. It. And, uh, and so it's not, it's not the best way to access me. It's probably best if you want to, you know, it's just Google me and, you know, go, go check stuff out, like check out the people principles and the like. So, uh, I can't say that I was, I was great at, at picking up social as a, as a mode of communication. And it couldn't right. be that sense that he, I, I couldn't even send, fit one of my sentences into a tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is sort of an art form, but... Yeah. No, it is. I think it's best it's haiku. Frankly, I think some TikTok creativity right now is drawing forth the best of the crowd creativity I've seen in a long time. I think it's... um, It's in... in, I mean, it's... I think something about the, the length itself is just forcing, like haiku, kind of a concise... A level of new expression, which I didn't really see with with Twitter, and certainly not, uh, you know, the other social platforms don't seem to be. Well, for those of us who write five hundred page no- novels, me right. and you both, <laughs> it's just not my best form of communication. Yeah. Yes. Could you condense your book down into one hundred forty no, characters? No. 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 Anyway, yeah. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ron, and thank you, Patty. Fascinating and, uh, and inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on our two-part journey into the world of all things Audible. Thanks for listening, and please tell a friend. Thank you to our presenting sponsors, Charleston Coffee Roasters and Page One Books, for their generous support. Show our sponsors some love by following them on Facebook and Instagram and subscribing to their email newsletters. Remember, use code COFFEEWITHFRIENDS for 20% off bagged coffees at Charleston Coffee Roasters and code FRIENDS, plural, FRIENDS15 for 15% off book subscriptions at page one. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. 
And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.